I'm Delincey Parham. And I'm Abbas Mutakim. And this is Tales of the Town, a podcast about Black Oakland. Throughout the Black radical tradition, Black students have played an essential role in helping create liberatory organizations. Organizations like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee played a major role in the civil rights movement. And some of its members, like Jamil Al-Amin and Kwame Ture, eventually became Black Panthers. And the Black Panther Party started at a junior college, right in the heart of North Oakland, called Oakland City College, whose name later changed to Merritt College. We're not a self-defense group in the limited fashion that uh, you usually think of self-defense groups. We think that uh, this educational process is necessary, and it's the people that will cause the revolution, and it's the people that will cause the change in the country. Uh, the Black Panther Party is simply the vanguard of the revolution. And we, Oakland uh, City College was formed in 1954, and a couple years after this, in 1960, the California Master Plan was born, which was a plan for reorganizing the system of California. This plan... At the time, it allowed for the top one-eighth of graduating high school seniors to attend a California community college tuition-free. We did actually, in one of the largest states in the union in the 1960s up through a portion of the 70s, have free higher education. No tuition. That's Donna Murch. She's a historian we heard from in our previous episodes. Now back to the California Master Plan. One of its defining factors is that at one point, it allowed for free tuition at community colleges. This changed the demographics of the schools. And so when black migrants arrive in the Bay Area and their children come of age, so many of them are born during the war and then come of age in the early 1960s, they complete high school. And there's actually, as part of the California Master Plan, if you have um, a GED, high school equivalency, or high school diploma, you were guaranteed a slot in this tripartite educational system. At the top of this tripart educational system were schools like UC Berkeley. In the middle was the Cal State schools, and at the bottom of this pyramid was community colleges, like Oakland City College. And it's that base of the pyramid that really produces the Black Panther Party, because you have the majority of Black migrants, their children don't go to University of California, Berkeley, they go to the community college. And at the center of this is Merritt College. So Merritt College is the school in the early 60s and 50s, it's called the Oakland City College, and it was a humanities school. So Huey Newton and Bobby Seale attend Merritt in the early 60s. That's where they meet each other. Merritt College might be one of the most important schools in which Black resistance was developed at. At Merritt College, the Black Panther Party was formed. The party then advocated for Black studies, and Merritt College had the nation's first Black Studies Department. This didn't happen at UC Berkeley or San Francisco State, but at Merritt College. My name is Dadding Oso Mobutu Yafet Sariko Imanankobo Oyamasela. That's why most people call me Dar, D-A-R. Dar is a former Black Panther and also one of the first students to get a degree in Black Studies at Merritt College. He described the atmosphere of Merritt. I didn't get to go to a black high school. <laughs> uh, I lived in black neighborhoods and had gone to black schools all my life until I went to high school. But when I got to Merritt, it was like, hmm, there's almost 50% black here, if not more. 
It was just what I needed. Merritt, in many ways, was a black school. It allowed black people, many of whom just fled the South, to develop a community to where at times they felt quote-unquote free. But it didn't start out having a black studies department. They had to fight for it. We spoke to Judy Juanita, who's an author, educator, former member of the party, and also my auntie. During the summer, black students then came to Oakland City College. It was the hot spot. So those of us who went to places like Oakland City College, the Hueys, the Bobbies, the Judys, you know, we were enjoying a freedom. However, we kept seeing two huge areas of inequality. And this was before we had entered the labor force. We saw that the schools were not teaching correct history. They were teaching the white man's version of history. They were ignoring Black or African accomplishments. And it was a one-sided view of history. And not only were these colleges failing to acknowledge the history of struggle and plight of Black people in America, the Black students at Merritt College also had struggles when they left the campus. And they wanted to do something about it. Violence is as American as apple pie. In other words, this is a very violent society. You know, so that broke that and the the killing of Martin Luther King, the the primary advocate for nonviolence, was a huge event and it was actually a huge metaphor for the end of end of an era. Dr. Martin Luther King the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. And police report that the murder has touched off sporadic acts of violence in a Negro section of the city. You know, so then that's when many, many, many thousands and hundreds of thousands of people woke up and became aware. And because of the oppression that students at Merritt faced, they began to stand up to police brutality and other forms of racism in Oakland. The school became a hub for radicals. It was a radical, very radical hotspot. Many years later, Evel Younger, who was the attorney general under Ronald Reagan when Ronald Reagan was governor, Evel Younger had been, I think, the uh, DA at, for Alameda County, but he identified for the FBI Merritt College as a hotbed for revolutionaries. So it was a place where you went outside the school and every kind of radical organization was there with their card tables set up and their pamphlets and their soapboxes. It was all that radical energy at Merritt College, which helped lay the foundation for the Black Panther Party. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale first met at the Afro-American Association. There was an organization called the Afro-American Association, and Donald Warden led it. And that was during the 60s, most of the 60s. He held large Sunday gatherings, and many, many people, including Huey and Bobby, met there and attended and absorbed all that knowledge about Black history and about Black politics there. So... Many people say that was the inception, that was the beginning of an ordered study of Black history at that point. 
Donald Warden was a student organizer at Merritt. And while this was the beginning of Huey and Bobby's organizing, they would both eventually end up leaving this organization. Here's historian Donna Murch again. They later break with Donald Warden because they feel that he's a cultural nationalist and proto-capitalist, and they think that he does not have a true vision for Black liberation. So people often learn about the Afro-American Association actually from Huey Newton and Bobby Seale attacking them. But it's important to remember that this is how they first meet the Afro-American Association. Huey and Bobby were looking for an organization that was more aligned with their principles. This led to them creating the Soul Students Advisory Council which was the predecessor of the modern Black Student Union, which can now be seen at college campuses throughout the country. Though they didn't call it a BSU, Huey and Bobby can be credited with creating the first BSU through the work of the Soul Students Advisory Council. While SF State is commonly credited with founding the first BSU, the origins of Black Student Unions can be traced back to Merritt College. Dar recalls the early days of the Soul Students Advisory Council. Someone said, you need to come to Soul Students. And I said, well, what is Soul Students? He said, well, we'll tell you when you get there. And I got there and it was a black, all black group. And it was meeting on black things, talking about our black teachers, our black programs, the new black classes that had been instituted and how we were going to further that, you know, and uh, we needed a black president. We needed more black teachers. We needed a lot more things that answered to our needs. Merritt College was a school that was at one point 30 percent black, yet black history was not part of the curriculum. Huey, Bobby, and the Black students of Soul Students Advisory Council said enough was enough and put change into their own hands and got their first Black history course. Not by waiting on administration, but by doing it themselves. This organizing ended up leading to the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense being created by Huey and Bobby. Both Huey and Bobby saw the need to get off the campus and into the community. In Huey's autobiography, To Die for the People, he said, When Bobby and I left Merritt College to organize Brothers on the Block, we did so because college students were too content to sit around and analyze without acting. Dar recalls what the energy of the students at that time was like. The Panther Party was formed out of Soul Students, basically, but some of the people in Soul Students were more cultural and wanted to wear African things and everything, but they did not want to carry guns. And the Panther Party... Uh, said, well, you know, we need the gun because. And so some people stayed in both of them and some people only went to one or the other there. So some people joined the Black Panther Party while others stayed in the Soul Students Advisory Council and some of them did both. And while the Panthers were formed to defend the community, whether it was pig patrols, creating breakfast programs, or getting stoplights put in to protect kids crossing the street, they also maintained a presence on Merritt's campus using it as a hub for recruitment. And this is important that the Panthers recruited at Merritt. Huey and Bobby tried to recruit at Berkeley, and what they would find was international African students with bourgeoisie interests. But when they recruited at their alma mater, they found a different class of Black folks. In fact, they found the class that they were from. So when they reach out to Merritt, they encounter a different group of Black people. These are the children of the South. So these are the Southern migrants coming from, you know, Port Arthur, Texas, Monroe, Louisiana, you know, rural Arkansas, which is where Eldridge Cleaver's family was and little Bobby Hutton. And they have a different social profile. They're much more working class. They're economically insecure. They're Southern. 
And one of the things I, I didn't mention when we were talking about the migration is that there is a strong class-based element about being Southern. So the more recent migrant you were from the South, in some ways, the lesser access you had. So Watts, for example, was considered a portal directly from the South. So having a heavy Southern accent, you know, which is really in some ways Black vernacular is a direct descendant of Southernness. And the direct Southernness led to a certain type of militancy. Remember, it was in the South where Bobby Seale learned how to shoot. So being this more like poor and working class migrant community, it had its own character and ultimately was more militant. And it's out of that militance that you get the explicit anti-capitalism, the blending of the ideas of Malcolm X and the internationalism of Malcolm X with explicitly with Marxism and then later with Maoism. So that matters. It's a black movement, but it's a black movement that reflects that second great migration coming out of the rural South, not just the history and genealogy of black urban elites. That's who was at merit. Before we move on, here's a reminder. In addition to the podcast, we've teamed up with artists from all over the Bay Area to produce 11 original songs for the Tales of the Town album. All proceeds from the music go towards supporting people's programs. Here's a sneak peek of Get Dangerous, featuring 22nd Gym and Will Bean, releasing this Friday. Drop a diamond week until my piece done. Jula told me 50 days, at them weeks up. Niggas playing Instagram, trying to keep up. Niggas can't afford a room, they trying to piece up. Yeah, we keep heat, baby. Went to it, then it stuck. There ain't no peacemaking. I had to cut my mans off. I heard he hating. These niggas type on keyboards. They be beat making. Let them keep hating. It's a grown man stash. It's at least 80. They like he crazy. I got to keep that pull around. Nick can get dangerous. They know what's up with me. Tell the ops instead of watching, come get up with me. Got a chopper and a sprinter. Got a buck with me. Even on my worst day, I'm worth a buck 50. Now let's get back to the story. The Panthers' goals were to go into the community and serve the material interests of the people. But Huey and Bobby still found it important to fight for community control of Merritt's campus, including fighting for a Black Studies department. In fact, this aligned with point five of the Black Panther Party 10-point program, which is... One decent education that teaches us about the true nature of this racist, decadent system. Education that teaches us about our true history and our role in society and the world today. As you can see, the Panthers were deeply concerned with political education. They understood that if one were to become properly educated on these issues, the next step would be putting the theory to test through practice, a.k.a. organizing with the Black Panther Party. As we learned earlier, the Panthers helped get the first Black history course at Merritt College, and Huey and Bobby patrolled it to make sure it was safe from outside agitation from these Euro-American administrators. You can read the platform in the program. It's a basic program. And it simply says exactly what black people have been crying for for 400 years. Merritt at this time was a hotbed for change. Black students at the college were beginning to seize the time and organize for power. The black students were beginning to make Merritt College a black college on the West Coast. And this is largely attributed to the organizing efforts led by the Black Panther Party. We've been hearing from Dar, who was part of the Soul Students Advisory Committee and also a member of the party. He shared some of the history of the Black Studies Department and how it was developed at Merritt College. What happened was, and how this really came to into play, was 
Harriet Smith, sister or Queen Mother McKenna, as she's known now, was the um, ASMC president, Associated Students of Merritt College. And as the first Black to be on it and the first Black president, she found out that they had the monies to do all types of things. And she wound up having uh, enough money to hire enough Black teachers in 1967 that we were able to, quote, start our Black Studies program. She hired two Black counselors, and I think it was four Black teachers. This was a strategic move by the students. They were able to get one of their own into a position of power. And from that position of power, Queen Mother McKenna was able to get resources directly to the people. This wasn't an assimilationist tactic, but rather one that was developing Black power. This ended up leading the Black students at Merritt to take over the campus and make demands for institutional change. The Black students had every intention of making Merritt a Black school ran and led by Black people. And to achieve this, they had to overthrow the white administration and strike. I grab a door and say, why are you in class now? Don't you know that we're striking today? And we're striking for the rights of all of the students at Merritt College, especially the black ones. So in order for us to get that respect, you're going to have to do something for yourselves. And that's the reason we're striking and closing down this class and all classes until it's understood that we are worth something and you can't treat us like dirt. And sure enough, we wound up with getting a black president uh, for the next semester. Uh, Norvell Smith became the first black president of any college around here. And he was over uh, Merritt College and things just worked from there. It was through this action that the black students at Merritt got their first black president. And not in a representation, seat at the table, integrative nonsense type of way, but in a power move in which the president will work to serve the needs of the black community. This helped lead to the institutionalization of black studies at Merritt College. And guess who was the first chair of the department? It was Melvin Newton, Huey's brother and a member of the Black Panther Party. Which brings us to a segment on the show we call... Let me put you on something. Put me on some. Put me on some. The significance of Merritt College is often not fully known and or is erased from the black radical tradition. Even amongst black studies departments, it is rarely acknowledged that Merritt is the godfather for black studies. Shoot, I minored in African-American studies at UC Berkeley, and it wasn't until I began deeply studying the Panthers on my own that I truly understood how not only was Black studies started at Merritt, but that the Black Panther Party is responsible for the creation of Black studies. Many of the Black bourgeoisie who run African-American and Black studies departments today erase the radical history of the department, as if it wasn't members of the lumpen armed with guns, as well as students who fought for the departments to exist. But we know one thing to be for sure. The government knew how important Merritt College was, and that's why they deemed the campus a threat. The feds knew that Merritt College was a hotbed for radical activity. And this was happening because black students were getting a true education and then taking action. 
This led to the state moving Merritt College from the flatlands of North Oakland all the way to the hills of East Oakland. Even if you have a car, with traffic these days, it can take 30 minutes to get to, and on a bus, even longer. The state purposely removed Merritt College from the black community. And not only that, but they also built BART right through Old Grove Street in North Oakland. All of these things were interconnected to the war on the Black Panther Party and the development of black power. Now back to the story. Black students at four-year institutions like San Francisco State and UC Berkeley quickly follow suit and develop their own. Now there's BSUs, Black Studies, and African-American Studies departments throughout the country and world. In the Black Panther Party, it influenced my own student organizing. I saw the echoes of the lessons the Panthers learned and my experiences with student organizing as part of the BSU. If it wasn't for Huey, Bobby, and the black students at Merritt College, I wouldn't have been able to join the BSU at UC Berkeley when I was a student. Shoot, I wouldn't even had a minor in African-American studies or even had a job lecturing in the African-American studies department. The work of our elders, it laid the foundation for us as black students at UC Berkeley to fight for institutional change as well as prison divestment. There is growing outrage tonight after an unarmed African-American teenager was shot and killed by police in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson, Missouri. When I was a student at UC Berkeley, it came at a significant time period during the Black Lives Matter movement. Mike Brown Jr. had just been brutally killed by the racist pig in Ferguson, and this led to people across the country standing up against police terrorism. And on UC Berkeley's campus, black students had our own fight. We talked to Ant, who I went to school with, and was a key organizer for our divestment campaign. So going back to the the killing of Mike Brown in 2014 in August, that sparked a national, just like the beating of Rodney King and like the the death, the killing, the murder of Emmett Till, it sparked national and then international headlines and organizing and action and a lot of activism. And at Berkeley, we as Black students stood up too, much like our elders did at Merritt College. Many of us studied Huey Newton and the Black Panther Party, and we were deeply inspired by them. We began making connections from the past and how it impacted us today. It's a trip looking back because, like, it, it reminds me of if you've, like, seen any documentaries of, um, and this is not to say we were the Panthers, right? I'm not making that comparison. But if you've seen documentaries of the Black Panther Party for self-defense, a lot of what they talk about is, like, how young they were and how, like, they, that, like, guided them. Your perspective is different. Your fear is different, right? Because we became targets. And, you know, luckily we're all still alive, but we, we dealt with different things. And black, black radicals, black organizers, black student organizers across the world have been killed. You know what I mean? Like assassinated, shot in the face, like all these different things shot in their sleep. So like looking back, it's like, I, I'm, I, I just turned 31. Like, and so I look back and I'm like, damn, like that was, we were ahead of our time in, in many ways, just like many young black folks are. Due to the rising Black Lives Matter consciousness movement, we ended up making 10 demands for institutional change at UC Berkeley. One of our biggest actions happened on one of the university's most prestigious days, Cal Day. With alum, current, and prospective students all on campus, we shut down Sather Gate, which is the main campus entrance. Another action we took was shutting down the Golden Bear Cafe, which is the campus's most popular eatery. And we did all this to fight for institutional changes. 
We even contemplated taking over the chancellor's office with the chancellor in it. But hey, we weren't as radical as our merit counterparts back in the 60s. Nonetheless, we were successful with our action. And now we had won one of the most important of these demands, which was the creation of the Fannie Lou Hamer Black Resource Center, which serves black and African students and gives a physical location for black and African students to not only study out of, but to organize out of. From this movement, led to organizing at a state level through the African Black Coalition, an organization that both me and Delincey were in before founding People's Programs. In 2016, the African Black Coalition launched a campaign to force the University of California school system to divest from private prisons. For those who don't know, private prisons are owned by corporations like the GEO Group and are publicly traded companies. Private prisons also have an average occupancy requirement between 80 to 100 percent which means the state is required to have prisoners. And in this fight for black liberation, we have to address all systems of oppression, not just police killings, but the prison industrial complex as a whole. The link was that we're thinking about police brutality that's happened, right? And then how else are black people being brutalized? And one of the ways is in prisons. And so folks were connecting police violence and police brutality which is like, you know, that's inherent in their job. They were originally slave captors. And so people were thinking about the other links. And so at that political moment, we were also thinking about prisons and how are Black people in prisons treated. And it's horrible. And why are Black people uh, overrepresented in prisons? And then who else is in prisons, right? And one of the reasons we ended up specifically going with private prisons is because, like, we had leverage as UC students um, in private prisons. Is a, They're a more tangible goal, right? So one of the, like, really disgusting things is like how much money they make. And it's not to say that the state doesn't make money, but it's just a different mechanism. So one of the ways we started trying to launch this campaign was by setting up meetings with UC administrators. So one thing I recently remembered about was uh, the director, the political director had to file um, FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act request, because the UC wasn't giving it to us. And so by doing the FOIA, um, even if they don't give you everything, they give you redacted information, they recognize that you're serious, right? And so that got us some meetings. And then from the meetings, um, we were able to find out that it was about 25 million. And we say about because shares are variable. By the time they finally got rid of it, I think it was closer to like 30 million. And that's only like a portion of their, in some cases, I think like billion dollar investment portfolio. It's a trip. What Ant is referring to is how much the UC system invested in private prisons. At the time, it was almost $100 billion that the UC like profile was investing in. So it was like one of the things that we saw from like a, a number standpoint, from like a political standpoint, is that $25 million, while that, that can have a really large impact in terms of like get rid of it, it can have a really large impact. Um, for the university, if you're investing $100 billion at the time, right, $25 million is is a win you could give us, right? $25 million is tangible. And so anything, anytime you're investing, you have to think about, like, what is actually tangible. And so one of the reasons, like, if you're, if, if you're a police abolitionist, if you're a prison abolitionist, you, your goal is get rid of all this stuff, right? And so we shoot for that. But we recognize that in shooting for that, they may not get rid of all of it. They may divest, you know, like we've seen right now, police departments cutting in half or whatever else. Um, but we have to keep pushing for the goal. $100 billion is the amount of the UC investment general portfolio in total. And like Ant said, it wasn't that much to ask them to divest $25 million that they were directly investing in private prisons when they had a total of $100 billion they were investing in other entities to begin with. And if you look at UC Berkeley, 
the population of black students has been around 3% for the past decade. And instead of the UC investing in black student success, it was invested in our community's incarceration. But what actually like did it was like our first meeting once we finally got to meet with the CIO. Like he, he wasn't aware um, of like the impact of this on people. Um, and it reminded me, like I was saying earlier, of a lot of non-Black people who are like, oh my God, prisons are so horrible. Oh my God, the police are bad, right? Like, it's like they're realizing something that we've known for most of our lives. The CIO, who is the university's chief information officer, acted as if he wasn't aware. But surprisingly, he did have some sympathy to the cause. And for the fight against this institution, we had to expose the contradictions of the UC. Yes, it was a win and it was historic and it's amazing. And it wasn't enough in that like, yeah, they, they stopped investing in these private prison corporations, but they're still getting investments from other places. And ultimately, people are still locked up in these private prisons, right? And in these federal and state and local prisons. So that was even like, a, you know, like we had this amazing victory. It was fantastic. And also it, it's like, damn, like... The fight has never been over. In the end, it turned out that the UC system was investing more than that initial $25 million. In fact, when it was all said and done, we were able to get them to divest $30 million from private prisons. This was a historic win, and it led to state legislatures to begin to think differently about private prisons. California moved to ban private prisons and private immigrant detention centers, but at the moment, it's held up in the court system. This shows us that when we get a win, that we got to make sure that that win completely happens. And the next battle was to make sure that the UC system was held accountable for what they agreed to. The CIO said that he would sell the shares by the 31st of December, you know, in 2015. Um, And then he actually, uh, we released a press release to make sure like that they would hold true to their actions because people will promise one thing and then do another. And legally, the University of California system, they could say certain things that seem like it's happening, but it's not, right? And so then on the 17th of December, we released a statement. And then on the 18th, they sold the shares, right? And and then it doesn't like show up until the end of the month, which is when it's like the close of the quarter. And then we had to, we had to follow up because we had other demands too. Following up and making sure the state is accountable it's important to see the win through, but there also needs to be a plan to force the system to reinvest in the people that it has abused. We were talking about moving that 25 mil to reinvest in education and companies that are owned or controlled by formerly incarcerated folks and specifically black folks. So like there were just certain, you know, there were certain things that we were asking for that we then still had to continue to work for. But the main one was making sure they actually sold those shares in these, these corporations, you know, in these private prison companies. And this victory encouraged other students throughout the country to research their institutions and force them to divest from private prisons. And it all started at UC Berkeley, a 10-minute drive down the street from the old Merritt College campus where a strong history of black power organizing was born. The Panthers influenced us. They had a major impact on our organizing work. Many of us were taking African-American studies courses, learning about our past, and then applying the lessons of history to tackle the conditions of the present. And it's not just Black students at UC Berkeley. The tradition the Black Panthers laid has undoubtedly influenced Black student movements across the world. 
Next week on Tales of the Town, we take a look at nearly 70 years of Oakland's music scene. Oakland's music has always been rebel. All, Oakland's music has always been creative. Oakland's music has always been music, especially 7th Street style music. It's always been something that was created in a club, something that was created from people booing you. It's always been created from the heart, from an artistic standpoint. That's next week on Tales of the Town. Tales of the Town is hosted and executive produced by me, Abbas Muntakim, and Delincey Parham. Our senior producer is Maya Cueva. Fact-checking is done by Bashir Mack and Danya Suleiman. Mixing and sound design is done by Pat Masidi miller and Warren Newsom. The theme song was produced by Cheyenne G and Carrie Lynn. The music from the Tales of the Town album that we featured on this episode is from 22nd Gym and Will Bean. Special thank you to Dar, Donna Merch, my auntie Judy Juanita, and Ant. And if you like this show, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from, give us a five-star review, and go tell your people. That's Dar. He's a former Black Panther and also one of the first students to get a degree in Black Studies at Merritt College. You're going kind of fast. It's hella words, bro. Like, if I read it slow, it's going to be hella awkward. <laughs> you start bro. rapping. We will be right back. <laughs>